On this prequel episode, we've got our fan poll follow-up for The Witches. We're learning about Frank Herbert and previewing Dune. Hello and welcome back to This Film Was Lit, the podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. It's another prequel episode. We've got a lot to talk about, a lot to get to, so we're just going to get right into it with our patron shoutouts. We have no new patrons this week, but we do have our Academy Award winners, and they are Paul, Kat Ensminger, Ben Wilcox, Jeff Niederhofer, Ian from Wine Country, ready for spooky season, a little late on that one, it's already over. Well, it's not, you know, spooky season lives in your heart, I guess, but... (laughs) (laughs) Only according to the calendar. As we're recording this, Halloween has passed. Winchester's Forever, Kelly Napier, Gray Hightower, Eli Youngs, Gratch... Just Gratch, Shelby Says, Happy Ace Week, V Frank, and Alina Starkov. Thank you all very much. You are our Academy Award winners. You are the best. Let's now go ahead and see what everybody had to say about our discussion on The Witches. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. On Patreon, we did not have any comments, but we did get two votes for the movie and two for the book, plus one patron who couldn't decide between the two. There you go. On Facebook, we had zero votes for the movie and two for the book. Ian said, I believe I had read the book first, which more or less prepared me the first time I saw the film on VHS. Angelica's makeup and the transformations of the boys, whilst creepy, didn't affect my nightmares or anything. If anything, the kitchen scene had me tensed up since it really did look like one wrong move and Luke goes into the boiling pot. Mm. I always find it funny when Chef Jim Carter goes mental trying to get his trousers off. I do understand Dahl's fury at the ending. The book ending has this bittersweet conversation between Luke and Grandma about the lifespan of a mouse and whether he'll have the time to hunt down the witches. There's something very British about being dropped into a bad situation like Luke has been and keeping calm and carrying on. It's something we just get over here. Saying that, the film if the film had cast anyone other than the dear sweet northern legend Jane Horrocks, Horrocks? Horrocks? I don't know. As Angelica's secretary, I don't think we would have cared about the ending. Jane being turned into a mouse, then killed. Nope. Jane turning into the dark side and murdering Luke and Grandma for revenge. Not our Lancastrian princess. So with Jane getting her happy ending, I'm fine with it. The society kind of sort of exists. It's called NSPCC, National Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. In the movie and the book, I believe it was the Royal Society. Mm -hmm. It's been around since Queen Victoria was on the throne, and if Dahl had used the actual name, he would have scared the shit out of kids to never call the society if they need to, and it would have been a great detriment. Loved the opening titles, aside from Angelica's chilling laughter. I used to imagine myself flying over the Norwegian landscape when I was a kid. This is a tough call, but I'm going to give it to the book. Wow, very... Very well thought out. Lots of thoughts on very, various aspects. Yes, very well researched. I don't know who Jane Horrocks is. She must be a specifically. I looked it up. She was in Absolutely Famous. Is her is her is according to Wikipedia the role she is like very well known for over there. I didn't know she was like much beloved. No, that's what I was saying. Over yeah. there, so I've never seen her, never heard no. of her, and this role didn't. 
do anything particular for me. Like her, you know, yeah. her in this role. I was like, she's fine. I guess I don't know. Yeah. But so not one of the many beloved British actors who <laughs> also is, yeah. became beloved in America, Uh-oh. I guess. At least not, yeah, not broadly. <laughs> Charlene said, I never saw the movie, but I'll always remember this book as the first time I experienced fiction pretending to be fact. So even though I was sure I knew the difference between fantasy and reality, suddenly I had this tiny seed of doubt planted in my head, and it was that doubt that made everything in the book so scary. Mm, Interesting. I can imagine that. I don't know if I've ever had that experience as a child. Yeah, I can't think I'm trying of to think. I, I can't think of it, but I didn't read this book when I was like a little kid. So I didn't yeah. have that experience. Um and I can't think of anything yeah. off the top of my head. I was trying to think head, of anything but... else that I would have read that the only thing I could think that maybe would have sparked that a little bit would have been like the uh um some of the scare, scary scary like some of the like um myth like scary story books that you mm-hmm. would not scary stories to tell in the dark necessarily or spooky stories to tell in the dark or whatever it was called. Um, but stuff like that, that, I feel like I remember a book like that, that was like, you know, purporting to tell like local or like myths or something yeah. like scary myths and not knowing. And it, to be fair, it probably was presenting them as like real. And yeah, and it, and that would be the only thing that even remotely jumps to my head in a similar vein but I can't think of anything else. I don't know. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Um, I'll have to think about it more, though. On Twitter, we had six votes for the book and three for the movie, plus two voters who couldn't decide. Kelly Napier said, Oh, no, I accidentally clicked the movie. Please change my vote (laughs) to the book. Stupid Twitter not letting me change my mind. Let us edit tweets and votes. (laughs) And I included that. Just in case anyone checks me on my numbers on Twitter, because I oh, did move her vote when I did my count. Uh, Kelly also said, I went with the book because I have yet to hear an actress playing the Grand High Witch pull off the accent I hear in my head when I read. I think Anne Hathaway gets it better than Angelica Houston the one thing 2020 has over 1990, in my opinion. But neither of them sounds like I think they should sound. Interesting. Huh. Yeah, I I obviously never read mm-hmm. it, so I don't know what I would imagine. I definitely like. heard more of like like a much thicker kind of um, like stereotypical Eastern European accent oh, yeah. in my head. Cause it's definitely like, it leans into the, like the V's as W's yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of thing, which, which Angelica Houston does, Yeah, but I definitely read it a little bit like thicker. Hmm. Shelby Suderman said, Katie already summed up my feelings on why I prefer the book and her final verdict, but I want to add that the plan at the end of the book is to go to witch headquarters and turn them all into mice. Step two is to release an army of cats on them. The movie stiffed us on the kitty army, which is true. Yeah. I mean, technically the book did too, because they only talk about it. We we don't actually see the kitty army, but... Maybe there should be a sequel. <laughs> On Instagram, we had six votes for the book and five for the movie. Uh, Jillian McLaren 88 said, love the movie because of Angelica Houston. The Leap 77 said, 
Growing up, I really liked Roald Dahl's writing style. Between him and Ray Bradbury, it kind of shaped my own descriptive style as well. So nostalgia will push me toward the book, but that's not really saying the movie is terrible. Yeah, I know. What a fence-sitter stance, but it is what it is. So no vote there. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty rare that we even will say, like, the, the book is good, then that means the movie's terrible. Yeah. Yeah, very rarely. Very rarely. I mean, sometimes, like, we've talked about some stinkers of adaptations yeah. on here. It happens. But... I, yeah, I mean, we've had bad adaptations. I don't know if we've ever had a bad book that was a good movie. I mean, obviously, there are ones where the movie wins. But, like, very often when mm-hmm. the movie wins, it's it's like rarely the, that the book, the book was is also bad. Good. The book is also just good. Yeah. But, like, like, you know, like Princess Bride or something right. like that. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I, I, I would have to go back and look at all of them and see, but I don't know if we've ever had one where we're like, wow, this book is terrible, but the movie's pretty good. It's probably happened. I think <laughs> the closest for me that I can think of right now off the top of my head, Sorry Kelly, is The Born Ad- Identity. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I not really like did book. not enjoy that book. Yeah. I, the one that jumped to my head potentially, but I don't remember what the verdict was or how much, but I just remember you not particularly loving the book, I don't think, was A Christmas Story. Um, But I could be wrong about that. I could be misremembering entirely. I thought that book was okay. okay. Uh, you know, another one that comes to mind actually is First Blood. That book was all right, but yeah. I, the movie was much better in okay. my opinion. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You did remember. I do remember you much preferring the book or the movie. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Interesting question, though. Marvel book to movie said, I watched Dominic Nobles, who was known as the Dom at the time, video about this movie. So I picked it up at the local used bookstore and read it. I really liked it and enjoyed the story for what it was. When I saw the movie, it nearly scared the shit out of me. Plus, it was just full of really bad acting. I would have to go with the book because it's just more rolled doll. Hmm. I actually didn't think there was a ton of bad acting. I didn't think it was bad. It's definitely arch acting yeah. and like very cartoon, you know, over the yeah. top. And, and I think you're always going to have to give a little bit of grace to child actors yeah. as well. I thought the child actors were actually fine. I, I think to me the stuff that came across as the worst acting, would, would, would that would like potentially, and I who knows, they didn't specify who they thought was the worst actor, mm-hmm. like doing a bad job, but... Um, to me, the, the the adults come across more over the... Like, the, I thought the main kid was fine. Like, I mm-hmm. thought he did a pretty believable job of being, like, a little... Just a little kid. I don't know. Um, but, but, I, I you I know, mean, the, I, the adults are, are, like, very... Yeah, it's again, over the top. Yeah. But that that also is a hallmark of a rolled doll property. Yeah, that, the, and that, the that was my point. The adults are very over the top. That was going to be my point, was that I think it actually fits really well so that the... The I, I, I that was kind of my ultimate point was that I don't know if mm-hmm. I would qualify or you know categorize it as bad acting so much as just a very distinct style of acting mm-hmm. that is you know going for a thing which is like this over the top wacky kids yeah and I, I do do think Roald Dahl's books something that they achieve is capturing like what it's like to be a kid and to be looking at these adults in your life and to be viewing them as like larger than life and yeah. over the top yeah. like if you think about like miss trunchbull from matilda like a person like that doesn't really exist like exactly as they're portrayed yeah. but when you're a kid 
that's what an adult bully feels like. Yeah. You know? Yeah, no, I agree. And and I mean, it's definitely also one of those things because it's also in that peak period of the late 80s, early 90s where, I mean, every shot in this in this movie almost is, is like a super wide angle lens pushed mm-hmm. up into somebody's face. So everybody's features are all stretched out and it's like that, you know, super yeah. cartoony, um, very um, distinct 90s style that was very popular for a while. Um, when portraying, when portraying like uh, you know, outlandish characters and events, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, it's interesting. I uh, I do think it's interesting. I thought it was interesting that they mentioned seeing Dom Dominic Noble's video about it, and then watching the movie and being scared by the movie. I don't know. I, I, I haven't seen that that video that's referenced. Well, I, I haven't. Here, so. I neither. I mean, I've seen his channel a handful of times. I've watched a number of his videos. He did a whole series of Twilight, like right around the time we were, like mm-hmm. after, right after we did. I think. Um, and he it really he does his his YouTube channel is is our show essentially, but like mm-hmm. scripted. I think at least seems vaguely scripted, like you know, like like an essay, like video essay form, kind of. Right. Um, but um, I don't know. It was interesting. Yeah, uh, I will check out his video because I do like his channel quite a bit from what I've seen of it. I haven't watched a ton of his videos, but I have watched the Twilight ones, and they were fun. Our last comment on Instagram was from Library Juju, who said, "The book, the book, the book." There you go. That counts as three votes for the book. <laughs> Can game the system. Uh, the book didn't need it. Yeah, uh, because our winner was the book with sixteen votes to the movie's ten, so it was fairly close. But yeah, not a complete runaway. Not a complete runaway. I was a little bit surprised. I thought the movie might take this one. Yeah, because it is one of those things that you think more people might have just seen the movie and yeah. not read the book. Yeah, there's that. And then um, when we did our initial poll between the 1990 and 2020 versions, people were so enthusiastic about the 1990, about version. The 1990 version. Yeah, and it is one that gets like has been kind of like a mythologized oh, yeah. in the memory of people our age. Yeah. So I thought the movie might take it, but it was the book. There you go. All right, let's move along now to our learning things segment and this week we're learning a little bit about the author of our upcoming episode about Dune, Frank Herbert. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. Franklin Patrick Herbert Jr was an American science fiction author, best known for the 1965 novel Dune and its six sequels. Lots of Dune. Yeah. Did he write all of them? All of I those? I think so. I, I, I could be wrong, but I thought there was a situation where some of the sequels were written I by like his son or something. look into it. He had some uh, posthumous publications, so okay. they might have been worked on. I by... could be wrong, but I thought that he was one of the people that had a... Um, I didn't go. I didn't get too into the weeds about the actual book, book and series itself. Partly because I was trying to avoid spoilers. Yeah. Um, and partly because there's gonna be at least one more movie. So yes. trying to leave some additional fodder. Yeah. I, <laughs> for um, further episodes. I don't. I was trying to just do a quick Google and see if I could figure it out because I, I, I could be completely wrong. I just had it in my head. I had this vague like idea that. He had because his son Brian Herbert mm-hmm. has written within the universe of Dune, and I thought I could be like I said I don't I don't remember. So we'll just we'll just say that he wrote all six of them because I I know he wrote most of them if not all of them. But Herbert was born in 1920 in Tacoma, Washington. He had early interests in reading and photography. 
because of a poor home environment, largely due to the Great Depression. He ran away from home in 1938 to live with his aunt and uncle in Salem. In 1939, he lied about his age to get his first newspaper job at the Glendale Star. Uh, He was briefly married to a woman named Flora Parkinson, with whom he had a daughter. During 1942, after the U.S. entered the Second World War, he served in the Navy, the Navy's Seabees for six months as a photographer, uh, but he suffered an accidental head injury and was given a medical discharge. After the war, Herbert attended the University of Washington, where he met Beverly Ann Stewart in a creative writing class in 1946. They were the only students in the class who had sold any work for publication. So they had that in common. They married later that year and ended up having two sons, one of whom you mentioned. Yeah. Just to clarify, I did finally figure it out. He did. Um, Frank wrote the original six novels. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, Brian, his son, wrote like with a co-author, wrote some prequels and stuff and other other novels. Mm-hmm. But the main six dude novels, like canonical dude novels, were all authored by Frank. Okay. So there we go. We have an answer to our question yep. now. In 1949, Herbert and his wife moved to California, where they befriended psychologists Ralph and Irene Slattery, uh, who then introduced Herbert to the work of um, several thinkers who would go on to influence his writing, including Freud, Jung, uh, Jaspers, and Heidegger. According to his son Brian... Herbert never graduated from university as he wanted to study only what interested him and therefore did not complete the required curriculum. Hashtag relatable. I think that that seems to be a a fairly common thing among particularly like gifted or talented Mm. people or or like hyper focusedly talented people are just not interested in. Yeah. You know. There are other people who just aren't interested for lots of reasons, but I, it doesn't seem like an uncommon story where you hear about, like, you know, like people who are, like, geniuses in a field or a thing are like, I just want to do this. I don't mm-hmm. care about other things, you know, across all, not just authors, across, like, all sort of professions and that sort of thing. Herbert's first science fiction story, Looking for Something, was published in the April 1952 issue of Startling Stories. Three more of his stories uh, appeared in 1954, issues of Astounding Science Fiction and Amazing Stories. I think we should go back to that model of naming literary magazines, by the yeah. way. We should return return to tradition. Just adjectives. <laughs> Just mostly adjectives. His career as a novelist began in 1955 with the serial publication of Under Pressure in Astounding. Herbert spent much of the 1960s focused on Dune, which I'm going to kind of (coughs) skip over since we have a whole section on the book coming up shortly. By the early 1970s, he had retired from newspaper writing and become a full-time fiction writer, thanks to Dune. Uh, During the 70s and 80s, he enjoyed considerable commercial success as an author. Yeah, Dune, Dune, Dune did pretty well. Not at first, which we'll talk about, but eventually, yes, it did do pretty well. 
His change of fortune, however, was overshadowed by tragedy. In 1974, Beverly underwent operation for, an operation for cancer. She lived for another decade, but her health was very adversely affected by the surgery. So they had kind of a rough time. Uh, the years then following were tumultuous, um, with uh, David Lynch's film version of Dune flopping in 1984 um, and also severe health issues for Herbert himself, leading to his death in 1986 of a massive pulmonary embolism while recovering from surgery for pancreatic cancer at the age of 65. In a 1973 interview, Herbert stated that he had been reading science he had been reading science fiction about 10 years before he began writing in the genre, and he listed his favorite authors as H.G. Wells, Robert A. Heinlein, Poole Anderson, and Jack Vance. He used his science fiction novels to explore complex ideas about philosophy, religion, psychology, politics, and ecology. Yep, that about sums up Dune. That's <laughs> <laughs> Although there is that meme I, I saw it the other day, and I'm sure you might have even shared it. No, maybe not. I think I saw it on the Philosophers in Space group where it's like the six Dune books, and the first two, it's like uh, politics. The middle two, it's like philosophy, and the, the, the last two, it's like weirdly horny for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that would be the only thing missing there is, is uh, <laughs> co covering complex ideas involving horniness. <laughs> Um, so the underlying kind of belly, the underbelly of his work was a fascination with questions about human survival and evolution. Mm -hmm. Initially, Herbert had planned to write a seventh Dune novel to conclude the series, but his untimely death left the series with questions and plot threads that have since remained unanswered and unresolved. It's interesting that his son wouldn't, since he has written in the universe and stuff, wouldn't have tried to take notes or something. And mm -hmm. I mean, maybe he's, I, I'm sure there's a question, like I'm sure he's been asked about that and yeah. talked about it, but I would be interested to know what his, because I haven't seen why his, it might just be, I don't, you know. He didn't get to finish it. I'm not going to mess with it. Right. <laughs> like, I'll write prequels, like, whatever. Yeah. But <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I could see that being kind of a like a no-win situation. Yeah. Like, nobody is going to regard that as no. the real ending. Yeah. And it's possible, like, it, maybe there weren't notes. Or, like, maybe, you know, yeah, maybe he, he had didn't have the any plot threads were set up. But maybe he hadn't, you know, yeah. really planned out where it was going. Because, yeah, I don't know. Today, Herbert is remembered as a great popularizer of scientific ideas, as well as a landmark science fiction author with a fan base often described as cult-like. <laughs> the Science Fiction Hall of Fame inducted Herbert in 2006. California State University Fuller Fullerton's Pollock Library has several of Herbert's draft manuscripts of Dune and other works with the author's notes in their Frank Herbert archives. Metro Parks Tacoma built Dune Peninsula and the Frank Herbert Trail in July 2019 to honor their hometown writer. You know, I understand uh, uh, with only being a couple, few hundred pages into Dune at this point, um, I understand why he would have developed a sort of cult-like fan base. It is some of the most well-realized fantasy. Now, not that I've read a ton, to be mm -hmm. fair, but it is some of the most well-realized fantasy sci-fi and I would categorize it as fantasy sci-fi. It is. It has like really interesting hard sci-fi stuff, but it is you know kind of fantasy sci-fi. It is some of the most well-realized and well most well-built world-building 
that I've ever read. Um, like bar none. So it, I get it. <laughs> it, it. It doesn't surprise me, you know, that the the culture around Dune that arose arose the way it did. I didn't include it in my facts, but another thing I saw was that he actually did not like that when people described his fan base as being like a cult. Yeah. Because he did not care for cults. No, yeah. I mean, that's a <laughs> kind of a, a big point of the books from what I've heard. Again, I'm not far enough in to have gone all the way there. But uh, from everything that I've heard, the books are very much a, a one of the overarching thematic messages is, hey, relig- don't make religions. Don't make cults. This is that's bad idea. It's not good. Yeah. All right, let's go ahead now and learn a little bit about the novel we were just talking about, Dune. My planet Arrakis is so beautiful when the sun is low. Rolling over the sands, you can see spice in the air. The outsiders ravage our lands in front of our eyes. Their cruelty to my people is all I've known. What's to become of our world? Dune is a 1965 science fiction novel by American author Frank Herbert, who we just learned about, set in the distant future amidst a feudal interstellar society in which various noble houses control planetary fiefs. Yep. The novel Dune spearheaded the Dune franchise. Indeed. Herbert began researching Dune in 1959. He was able to devote himself wholeheartedly to that endeavor because his wife had returned to work full-time as an advertising writer for department stores. So she was the breadwinner nice. in the 1960s. He's out here living uh, the dream. Allowing him to, to work on his passion <laughs> project. <laughs> Dune took six years of research and writing to complete and was much longer than other commercial science fiction of the time. Mm-hmm. Herbert later stated that the novel originated when he was assigned to write a magazine article about sand dunes in the Oregon Dunes near Florence. He got over-involved and ended up with far more raw material than what he needed. That article was apparently <laughs> never written. <laughs> but he did write Dune. Yeah. Other significant sources of inspiration for Dune were Herbert's experiences with uh, psilocybin and his his hobby of cultivating (laughs) mushrooms. Why am I not surprised by any of that? Um, Arthurian legend, Middle Eastern and Islamic culture, environmentalism and ecology, empires and feudalism, and gender dynamics. Mm Yep. Accurate from my where I am so far. Dune was initially published in Analog Science Fiction magazine in two parts, comprising of eight installments. Uh, it was then rejected by nearly 20 book publishers, with one editor prophetically writing, I might be making the mistake of the decade, I, but... I truly don't know how you could read more than, like, 20 pages of this and be like, Nah, we're not gonna. Pu- I, it blows my mind. I don't that somebody think they. I don't think, think a lot of people. I don't think they read that much. Yeah, I, even so, I feel. Yeah, I mean, I get. I, I I was very, very not very far in when I was like, yep, yeah, 
I don't like. But, I can't I mean, fathom. You have to consider too that. Dune was the first book to do what it was doing. Yeah. So arguably, at least to some there extent, was yeah. no market for it. Yeah, it definitely at least to some extent, for sure. I, I am. Yeah, that is fair. I'm looking at it backwards through glasses, yeah. where where we have seen the popularity of Star Wars and Game of Thrones yes. and all of these things that spawned from Dune and other places, but very significantly from Dune. Uh, and it so it so I'm like, well, how could you possibly not? But yeah, that's yeah. fair. I, yeah. And especially because. I'm going to talk like a minorly out of my butt because I don't know a ton about the history of science fiction. Yeah, as I, a genre, I don't either. So. But my understanding of it is that up until kind of like around this time period, it was much more like pulpy niche right. kind of a thing. Yeah. So when you get something like Dune, I, I, I understand how an editor would look at that and be like, what would we do with this? I get that, but I also Lord of the Rings existed at this point. True, and and it's that's also a very apt comparison in terms of the way it world builds and everything. But and had it, Lord of the Rings had its? I don't know if it had had its heyday or not, but it, I mean, it, it was out. But, but it was out. But Lord of the Rings surged in popularity in like the sixties or seventies. And I so think. it's possible then that when he was shopping this Lord of the Rings hadn't. I don't know. I, I don't know the answer to that question. But because it got picked up by all the hippies, right? As did Dune. So. Yes. <laughs> right place, right time. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Dune did get published, despite being uh, soundly rejected by many publishers. Uh, but Sterling E. Lanier, who was an editor at Chilton Book Company, had read the Dune serials when they were being published in uh, Analog and offered a... 7,500 advance plus future royalties for the rights to publish them as a hardcover book. However, that first printing did not sell well, was poorly received by critics as being atypical of science fiction at the time. It's fantasy, you idiots, but also science fiction. Uh, Chilton considered the publication of Dune a write-off and uh, Lanier was fired. That poor guy. Right. Made the right call and everybody <laughs> and suffered for it. However, over the course of time, the book gained critical acclaim and its popularity spread by word of mouth. By 1968, Herbert had made 20,000 from it, far more than most science fiction novels of the time were generating. Uh, not quite enough to let him take up full-time writing. But the publication of Dune did open doors for him, including opportunities with the Seattle Post-Intelligencer, with the University of Washington, and as a social and ecological consultant in Vietnam hmm. and Pakistan. Interesting. So there's a lot to be said about Dune's cultural impact, yeah. but we are going to save <laughs> that for a future Learning Things segment. You know, part two comes around. Yes. Because I th there's enough there that that yeah. can be its own segment. Yeah. Dune has been called a mix of soft and hard science fiction. Hard mm -hmm. elements include the, eco uh, the ecology of Arrakis, uh, suspensor technology, weapon systems, and ornithopters, ornithopters yep. while soft elements include issues relating to religion, physical and mental training, cultures, politics, and psychology. Yeah, it's, this is, spoilers, this is where Jedi come from. Basically. Basically. Not kind of. 
I saying that. I'm talking out of my ass. That's the vibe I got from reading the book so far. We'll is oh, 100% George Lucas was so, like saw this and and obviously there's lots of Jedi also pull a lot from Asian cultures and 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 uh you know samurai and all kinds of mm-hmm. stuff. I'm not not saying exclusively. That's a vast and gross under oversimplification. But there's a lot of elements of yeah. of well, no, I no Jedi idea comes here. from one yes, single thing. Obviously. All ideas are a mishmash. Yeah. That would be actually another interesting learning things segment sometime, uh, the difference between hard sci-fi and soft sci-fi. We've talked about that a little bit. Yes, we talked. We've never done a dedicated. We 100% did some sort of segment where we talked about, well, no, it was when we did the sci-fi first fantasy. Yeah. And within that, we discussed, I believe, like hard sci-fi, soft sci-fi, like kind of to some extent. Right, but we've never done a dedicated segment. Yeah, you're right. You're right. So I think that would be interesting. Let us know if you're interested in that. Dune tied with uh, Roger Zelazny's This Immortal for the Hugo Award in 1966, and it won the inaugural Nebula Award for Best Novel. Reviews of the novel have been largely positive, and Dune is considered by some critics to be the best science fiction book ever written. The novel has been translated into dozens of languages and has sold almost 20 million copies as of 2019. That might be higher now because of the movie. Yeah. Dune has been regularly cited as one of the world's best-selling science fiction novels. On November 5th of 2019, the BBC News listed Dune on its list of the 100 most influential novels. There we go. A couple thoughts from other big names in the genre writing. Robert A. Heinlein described the novel as powerful, convincing, and most ingenious. Mm-hmm. Piece. I think that's on the back cover of my book. I probably. There's, there's pull quotes from Heinlein and a bunch of people. Yeah. Arthur C. Clarke was another one of the pull quotes on the back. P. Schuyler Miller called Dune one of the landmarks of modern science fiction, an amazing feat of creation. J.R.R. Tolkien refused to review Dune on the grounds that he disliked it with some intensity and thus felt it would be unfair to Herbert, another working author, if he gave an honest review of the book. I would be so desperate to know what J.R.R. Tolkien thought of it or like why he didn't like like it. Why he disliked it. Yeah, Yeah. I'd be very interested to know. I bet because that's it's, out there somewhere. It, yeah, maybe. It, the he world might have wrote about it, it in a letter or something. Is, is so, and I would imagine that, I feel like that would like crush Herbert and be like, fuck. Like I got to yeah. like, again, with the, with the, how much um, similarity there is to things like Lord of the Rings in the world building and stuff. It does feel like he, he definitely pulled inspiration there. So it really mm-hmm. probably would have been a little, little disappointed to hear <laughs> Tolkien be like, nah. Well, so on those grounds, I do think it's nice of him to not. Yeah, like, that's fair, I guess. It's nice. Uh, but the fact that he did not like it is particularly hilarious uh, when you hear this next quote from Arthur C. Clarke, who described Dune as unique and wrote, I know nothing comparable to it except yeah, Lord of the Rings. Exactly. At the time, I would imagine that would be the only yeah. thing, at least the only thing that th- these people had, re- you know, I'm, there. who knows, there may be other works in other cultures and stuff that hadn't made it around. But yeah, at, at the time, for sure, it seems very likely that that would be the case. Yeah. Um, and now I think definitely like the big comparison is Game of Thrones. Yeah. Like it's, I, it, it, uh, yes, for sure. I definitely. It, it's it's very similar in a lot of ways. And obviously Game of Thrones 
after. Yes. Thrones, but. Yeah, and Game of Thrones definitely feels like a lot of some of the the the, the houses and the mm-hmm. and now obviously Game of Thrones is also based on real life uh, right. events, which I don't think Dune was inspired by the War of the Roses, but I could be wrong. <laughs> I don't know. I hadn't I hadn't seen that anywhere. I did not see that anywhere yeah. either. But I I mean I knew nothing about Dune and I saw like that first trailer and I was like, yeah. "Oh, it's like Game of Thrones in space." Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you meet the characters, it becomes even more like Game of Thrones. I mean, there's there's Varys is a character basically and like there's a character called the beast who's basically the hound i think <laughs> i'm not far enough in to know but like there's so many similarities in terms of like the t- archetypes of characters that are contained within this that it seems very uh yeah it's mm. uh, i do duke leto is basically just ned stark it seems like and uh <laughs> And Paul is kind of just Jon Snow a little bit. Like it's, I mean, I, that's a again a vast oversimplification. I have not read Game of Thrones, and I'm halfway through Dune, not even halfway through the first Dune book. So, I, if you're a big fan of both, don't I get it that I'm again speaking way out of turn here? But those comparisons are not uh, mm-hmm. unfounded. I don't think. But I think definitely that's a good like kind of touchstone to go to for explaining it to someone who is familiar with Game of Thrones because it was the most massive cultural thing to happen in the last decade. I think that's a good point. I think it is something, too, that I feel like a lot of Dunes fans would roll their eyes at like mm-hmm. hearing that, like I would bet that a lot of Dune fans would roll their eyes. And like, oh my god, the cult-like ones. Well, and just a lot of them, I think, in general. <laughs> you know, it, just hearing somebody be like, "Oh, it's like Game of Thrones in space," or like, "Oh, gee, okay." Not, I mean, mm-hmm. there's so much more. You know, it's not just that. But like you said, I think it is a very succinct way right. to try it's, to get across. Yeah, it's a succinct way to let somebody who knows nothing about it yeah. know, like, okay, this is what we're kind of looking at yeah. here. And it's actually accurate in this case in a way that a lot of things, other things compared to Game of Thrones aren't yeah. accurate. You know what I mean? In terms of, like, the politics and the world building and the the character archetypes within Dune are very similar to what you find mm-hmm. in Game of Thrones. Whereas, you know, some people would say that same thing about like all kinds of stuff that they would compare it to Game of Thrones just because Game of Thrones was like a popular thing to compare it to. I think in this instance, it's actually accurate, yeah. <laughs> at least again, to some extent. All right, let's go ahead now and talk a little bit about the 2021 film, Dune. We are House Atreides. There is no call we do not answer. There is no faith that we betray. Smile, Gurney. I am smiling. The Emperor asks us to bring peace to Arrakis. House Atreides accepts! I know you. There's only a way of hanging my mind. You need to face your fears. Come with me. Before. They're not human, they're brutal. The Duke's son sees too much. This is my Dune. Kill them all. God in heaven. Dune is directed by Denis Villeneuve, uh, director of Arrival, Blade Runner 2049, Incendies, Sicario, Enemy, Prisoners, and a couple other smaller films. Those are all his biggest films. 
It was written by Denis Villeneuve, John Spates, who also wrote Prometheus, (laughs) Passengers, and Doctor Strange. Uh, I think the weak link in Prometheus uh, was Damon Lindelof, if I had to guess, because it was multiple writers on Prometheus, but... Um, and, uh, the third, uh, writer on the film was Eric Roth, who wrote heck of a list here, Forrest Gump, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, A Star is Born, Munich, and a bunch more films. I just didn't put them all down, but a bunch of like Oscar winning hmm. or Oscar nominated screenplays. Uh, the film stars Timothy Chalamet, Rebecca Ferguson, Oscar Isaac, Jason Momoa, Stellan Skarsgård, Stephen McKinley Henderson, Josh Brolin, Javier Bardem, Sharon Duncan Brewster, Chang Chin, Dave Bautista, David Dostamalkian, Zendaya, and Charlotte Rampling. And then more people, but those are all the most important characters. I went, this is one of the ones because I think I've been introduced to enough of the characters that I was able to know who to put in the credits as like these are or in this uh-huh. part as like these are important characters <laughs> also they're all the biggest name actors and actresses right. but i was like okay these are all going to be important characters uh, the film has a currently an 83% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, a 74% on Metacritic, and an 8.3 out of 10 on IMDb. And uh, as of this time of recording, it has made, or actually as of the time of me writing these notes, which was two days ago, um, or a day ago, uh, the film has made $293 million against a budget of $165 million, and that return has already ensured that a sequel will, in fact, be made, a part two. This is the third completed adaptation of Doom after a 1984 film, as you mentioned, by David Lynch and a 2000 miniseries on sci-fi created by John Harrison. Uh, I say completed because filmmaker Alejandro Jodorowsky, I know how to say his name, (laughs) Jodorowsky's, no, I've heard because there's a. I'll talk about it. Anyways, Jodorowsky uh, had acquired the rights in the 70s to make an extravagant 14 hour adaptation of the book, but the project fell apart. This this effort became the subject of a documentary called Jodorowsky's Dune, which released in 2013 that I have not seen that I've been wanting to watch forever, but I just have never gotten around to it because it's supposed Mm -hmm. to be a fascinating documentary. Uh, And I think it will be even more fascinating now that I'll have read the book and seen the movie. I think that will make it even more interesting because this is my first interaction with Dune media other than, you know, hearing Mm -hmm. of it in passing um, this read and this watch through. So I did see uh, when I was doing my book segment, some stuff about how Dune was long considered unfilmable. Yes. Often, often described as unfilmable. Um, and uh, as you mentioned, the, the 1984 film was a bit of a flop. It's beloved by some fans and mm-hmm. hated by others. Uh, and the uh, 2000 miniseries is very similar, beloved by some fans and hated by others for different reasons. Um, that there's a, a podcast I listened to um, called Skeptic's Guide to the Universe that they were all big fans of the book Dune, and they love the 1984 version. Mm-hmm. Other people I know, big fans of the books, <laughs> hate the 1984 version. So it seems like it was just a very polarizing version. And we'll talk a little bit about, uh, I have a note way down the road here, um, about David Lynch and his version uh, and why it is what it is, at least to some extent. Uh, So Legendary Entertainment acquired the film and TV rights for Dune on November 21st, 2016, and very quickly after that tapped uh, Villeneuve to direct. In September of 2016, Denny said that, quote, a longstanding dream of mine is to adapt to Dune, but it's a long process to get the rights, and I don't think I will succeed, end quote. I got news for you, 2016 Villeneuve. (laughs) (laughs) He also said that he felt he was not ready at that time to direct a Dune movie until he had completed projects like Arrival and Blade Runner 2049, and that with his background in science fiction films, quote, Dune is my world. 
Uh, from the beginning, Villeneuve stated his goal to adapt the book as a two-part film, saying, quote, I would not agree to make this adaptation uh, of the book with one single movie, uh, end quote, as Dune was too complex with power and details and that a single film would not capture all of those details. In adapting the book, written in the 1960s for the 21st century, Villeneuve really wanted to reflect on realities that have happened related to over-exploitation of the Earth uh, and considered his screenplay a coming-of-age story, but also a call for, call for action for the youth. Those are both quotes. Hmm. While he decided to streamline many things, his main core goal was, quote, I really wanted to make sure that the hardcore fans will find the atmosphere and poetry of the book, a book intact, um, which that is... That sentence alone, if you would have, again, only being 200 pages in um, to the book or whatever, roughly 200 pages in, that sentence alone, if you had just showed me that after I read the first 102 pages, I'd be like, this guy gets it. <laughs> like <laughs> what it is that people like about this. It's the atmosphere and the poetry um, because it has some incredibly just um, fascinating writing. I've been writing a lot of quotes as I go or, you know, taking notes on a lot of quotes as I've been reading through. Uh, Villeneuve also chose to alter some of the arcs of female characters in the book, and this is a bit spoiler for our eventual episode, uh, but he wanted to give them more uh, respect and prominence. He stated, quote, femininity is there in the book, but I thought it should be up front. Uh, and according to Rebecca Ferguson, who plays uh, Lady Jessica, which is Paul Atreides' mother, quote, Dennis was, uh, Denny was very respectful of Frank's work in the book, but the quality of the arcs for many of the women have been brought up to a new level. There were some shifts he did, and they are beautifully portrayed now, end quote. So that's something to look out for upon watching the new movie, and we'll uh, be comparing that to how they kind of work out in the book. Uh, principal photography uh, for Dune began on March 18th, 2019 at Origo Film Studios in Budapest, uh, and also filming also took place in Wadi Rum in Jordan and uh, ultimately finished in July of 2019. They also filmed some in the Netherlands? Somewhere up, no, Norway? Shoot. Somewhere up north, uh, Arrakis. Uh -huh. uh, most of the movie and book takes place on, um, or on Arrakis, sorry, which is the, the Dune planet. Yeah. Um, Caladan, which is their home planet, is like a wetter, like greener mm. planet, and they filmed that in one of the Nordic countries. I can't recall where now. Wadi Rum, that's the that's the place where a lot of stuff is filmed. Yes. Right? Uh, oh, Star Wars was filmed, I believe, okay. in Wadi Rum. I'm fairly the place certain. Place that like looks like Mars. Yeah. Uh, like the Tatooine stuff, I think, was okay. filmed in Wadi Room. I, I, I could be wrong about that, but it, it rings a bell. Uh, so the film score was composed by Hans Zimmer, who was also a big fan of the novel Dune. And this, I thought, was really interesting. He turned down working with Christopher Nolan on Tenet to score this film. Hmm. Uh, and if you know anything about, I mean, Hans Zimmer works with um, Nolan all the time. Like all yeah. of his big major scores are Hans Zimmer scores. Uh, and he was like, nope, I'm doing Dune. So as I mentioned earlier, uh, David Lynch directed the 1984 version of Dune, and he stated that, quote, he has zero interest in Dune 2021. Uh, <laughs> but we'll explain why. <laughs> he cited that his issues have nothing to do with Denis Villeneuve, but with his own painful memories of making the 1984 version. And this is, I think, why the 1984 version becomes so polarizing for a lot of people. And this is a quote. Because it was a heartache for me, it was a failure, and I didn't have final cut. I've told this story a billion times. It's not the film I wanted to make. I like certain parts of it very much, but it was a total failure failure for me, end quote. And famously, his version was like 300 minutes long or something. Mm -hmm. It's like four hours long. And the version they cut it down to is like the studio cut down to like two hours. Yeah. And so like so much of it is missing. Um, 
And I think that has a lot to do with there are parts of it that he like like he said, there are parts of it that he likes very much. And I think that some fans lot latched onto that stuff and was like, yes, you know, it's there. And then other people were like, what the heck? <laughs> like, yeah. you know, and I think that has a lot to do with um, kind of the polarizing nature of people's opinions on it. Also, I bet it has a lot to do with when you saw the movie. If you saw it when you were a little kid. Yeah, probably would like it more, you know, when you were younger, you probably like it more. But if you were an older Dune fan, you know, and you're like, what the heck did they do to this thing? You know, mm-hmm. I could see that also being being a part of it. Not, uh, this is not unlike the Star Wars prequels. Yeah. 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 Definitely. To some extent. Uh, so I didn't know this. Uh, a spinoff prequel uh, titled Dune the Sisterhood was announced for HBO Max while they were marketing this film. I'd miss that completely. I saw this note. In your when I was looking at at this earlier, and my brain went sisterhood of the traveling dune. Yep, that's what my brain did. Uh, no, the novel will. It's a prequel or not novel. It's a prequel series covering uh, focusing on the Bene Gesserit, which is a an order of um, space nuns. That's mm. a vast oversimplification, and I haven't got nearly enough background on them to know much about them because early on in the book they're just sort of alluded to, and you meet a couple. Uh, uh, Lady Jessica is a Bene Gesserit, but they're like a religious sect of mm. of women within the, that have like powers. Kind of, it's interesting, but the, but apparently they're uh, making a TV series based on that. Interesting, exploring that. We're all uh, getting into the the Marvel. Uh, Model, yeah, yeah. Uh, so Sting was conf- considered for a cameo slash a small role in this film after he starred as Fade uh, Fade Rotha in David Lynch's Dude in 1984. But that character actually spoilers gets, ends up being omitted from this adaptation. Gasp! I don't know who that is. Uh, he is the older son of the eldest son, uh, I think, of um, Baron Harkonnen, the main like villain of oh. this one. So he's a bad guy. Um, yes. Wow. Uh, but he's, yeah, there's two. Anyways, yes. <laughs> uh, so Ben, uh, going to some reviews now to see what people are saying about it. Uh, ben Travis of Empire Magazine gave it five out of five stars and said, quote, an absorbing, awe-inspiring, huge adaptation of half of Frank Herbert's novel that will wow existing acolytes and get newcomers hooked on its spice-fueled visions. If part two never happens, it'll be a travesty, end quote. Travesty avoided. Travesty avoided. <laughs> Averted. Uh, Robbie Collin of the Daily Telegraph also gave it five stars, calling it, quote, majestic, unsettling, and enveloping. Zan Brooks of The Guardian uh, gave it five stars, calling it dense, moody, and quite often sublime. The missing link bridging the multiplex and the art house. Uh, in another positive review, Justin Chang of the LA Times wrote, quote, Villeneuve draws you into an astonishingly vivid, sometimes plausibly unnerving vision of the future. End quote. Uh, Green, Leah Greenblatt of Entertainment Weekly graded the film a B, said, quote, uh, Dune is exactly the kind of lush, lofty filmmaking widescreens were made for, a sensory experience so opulent and overwhelming it begs to be seen big or not at all. Well, joke's on you. We're watching it on our TV. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna go to the theater we're time. also gonna go to the theater and see it but for note-taking purposes we're gonna watch it on uh on hbo max uh and also added quote the sheer awesomeness of villeneuve's execution often obscures the fact that the plot is mostly prologue a sprawling origin story with no fixed beginning or end end quote 
Uh, so uh, some negative reviews here. Uh, Kevin Maurer of the Times gave the film two out of five stars and said, "quote Every frame is spectacular. Dune is also kind of boring." <laughs> Uh, some reviews criticize the film for, and this is interesting and we're not going to go into a lot of depth here. We may go into a little bit more in the episode. Maybe not. It's going to take a lot of more research and reading. I know there's an article making rounds right now discussing this, uh, that I think is interesting, but it is uh, above my pay grade currently because I have not read enough on it. Um, but I wanted to mention it. So some reviewers have criticized the film for pulling back, uh, on the Arabic and Islamic influences that Herbert had used in the novel, but still appropriating those elements, uh, as well as a lack of casting of Middle Eastern or North African actors, uh, which is shortened to Mina, M-E-N-A, um, uh, Spates, uh, the right, one of the writers, John Spates, stated that they had to pull back on their use of Arabic uh, culture embedded in the novel for the film by saying, quote, the Arab world was much more exotic in the 1960s than it is today. Today, the Arab world is with us. There are fellow Americans there everywhere. If you were to build a kind of Arab future on Arrakis in a novel starting today, you would need to invent more and borrow less, end quote. Um, and not that that's a, an extensive or a exhaustive quote addressing it but like i said i know there's an article that's been making the rounds discussing this that sounds particularly interesting i think it is a little bit from what the little bit i have read a bit of a catch-22 in trying not to appropriate uh the cultural references that are within dune but also not making them like uh, sort of like um uh not abusing them but like exploiting the cultural mm -hmm. rep it's it's I think it's a complicated topic. Um, at least the use of, cause like in the, within the book and I haven't even got to them talking about it a lot. There's a lot of use of um, the, the Fremen people are essentially like a stand in for like um, middle Eastern, Northern mm -hmm. African sort of like uh, native people. Um, and there's lots of use of language like jihad and, and that pulls a lot from Islamic um, Islamic uh, religion and stuff like that. And I, from what I understand, they cut a lot of that language out mm -hmm. and, and sort of, turn it into more generic, you know, American English, mm -hmm. anglicized versions of that stuff. So they probably call the say like holy wars and stuff instead of like the book says jihad, they probably say like holy war or whatever would be my guess. I don't know. Um, but like I said, um, it, it's a, it's a complicated topic that I, I would be interested in discussing more, but I haven't done enough research on it yet. So, uh, uh other people have also criticized the, the novel for preventing, uh, presenting a white savior narrative, but we'll talk more about that in the main episode. Cause that's the point of the book. So, <laughs> which I can tell already. And I'm only 200 pages in that. The whole point is setting up a sort of a subversion of the white savior trope, but okay, who knows? Maybe I'm wrong. It sure seems like it's going to be the point. All right, Katie, where can people watch it? Dune is currently in theaters and also streaming on HBO Max. The simplest one of these we've done in yeah. maybe ever. At, at least as of time of recording this. If you listen to this episode yes. much later, you'll have to look for it also. It'll probably be on HBO Max. Still. Yeah. It'll just, yeah, just won't be yeah, in theaters anymore. All right. That's going to do it for this prequel episode. I can't wait. I have a lot of reading to do over the next few days to finish the first part. Uh, I discussed this before, but I'm, I'm going to read up to where the movie ends, which mm -hmm. I, I have looked up and know roughly where the movie ends. Uh, and I'm going to finish through that. Cause I just have not, I'm incredibly busy <laughs> at work and stuff right now. And I just have not had enough time to read it as much as I wanted. So I'm not gonna be able to finish the whole first book before the first movie, but I will be able to finish what's in the first movie. Um, but we were, as we mentioned before, we will be joined by Aaron Rabinowitz, uh, from philosophers in space and embrace the void who has read the book 
several times uh, and all of the books to my understanding so he will be our fount of knowledge for that our dune spurt I do, our dune spurt that sounds <laughs> real interesting I think he would approve of that terminology <laughs> Uh, until uh, a week from now when we're talking about Dune, guys, gals, non-binary pals, everybody else. Keep reading books. Keep watching movies. And keep keep being awesome. awesome.